This podcast is presented to you by Pastor Derek Armstrong and Word of Grace Community Church. For more information, please visit WOGCC.com. Good morning, Word of Grace. Glad you're here at church today. I'm excited to kick off this new series going through the book of Romans. And as I was studying and praying, I was like, maybe we'll make it past the second verse today. So uh, I'm really excited to share this word with you, and I hope you brought your Bible today. If you did, go ahead and turn to the book of Romans in the very first chapter. And if you're taking notes, which I hope that you are, we have there for you the bulletins. There's a lot of space in there for you to take notes there. You can also follow along online as well and take notes that way. Um, The title of the message today is Called and Separated to God. Now before we read Romans chapter 1, I want to give us just a little bit of history on the book of Romans who wrote it, kind of the setting, to kind of set up this thing for us to help us understand it better as we go through it. Now, the book of Romans was a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, and he wrote it somewhere around AD 56. Now, Paul was converted to Christianity somewhere around AD 35. So here Paul has 20 plus years of preaching and teaching the gospel under his belt. So this is a very mature understanding of the gospel. This is not just something he came up with yesterday. And also, if we look at the writer Paul, we can see that he had a great well and depth of knowledge to be able to pull from in order to articulate the gospel. Because before Paul was a Christian, he was a Pharisee who persecuted Christians. And he went by the name that you may have heard more frequently referred to when he was persecuting Christians as Saul. He was called Saul of Tarsus. Now, I grew up hearing it taught that when Paul became a Christian, he changed his name. Well, that's not true. Because if you look at Hebrew culture, still even to this day, that Jewish people have two names. They have a name that ties them to their Jewish roots. Excuse me. They have a name that ties them to their Jewish roots, and then they have another name that is used in the world outside of that Jewish culture. And so to keep that name tied to his roots, his parents named him Saul, which is in Hebrew the name Shaul. And the name Shaul is basically uh, translated as like a gift from God or something that came from God. And so it was, uh, shows us that Paul's parents were praying and believing for a child, and then here comes their son, so they name him Saul as a gift from God. But yet his Gentile name or his Greek name was the name Paul. And that's a Greek name that comes from the word Paulos, which is where we get our English word pause. So they named their kid Pause, you know, and uh, which could be significant of the stopping or ceasing of his persecution of the church and could have been one of the reasons he went by Paul from his conversion on out. Um, But mainly, it's because he was ministering to a group of people that were outside of the Jewish culture. So here's this guy who had a radical conversion because he was persecuting the church of God. This guy was trained as a religious leader, and he was trained by uh, Gamaliel the Elder, which was the most famous rabbi of his day, and Gamaliel the Elder was known for persecuting the church. 
he was known for persecuting Christians. So now you can see where some of Paul's fervor for persecuting the church came from because he was a student of someone who was very passionate and known for imprisoning the church and imprisoning Christians, uh, persecuting them, torturing them, even in some instances killing them. And we see that throughout the ministry of Paul prior to his conversion. Now something you also need to know about this guy is that he's not just some zealous maniac that is on a mission. He is a smart, well educated guy because if you were a Pharisee, and Paul refers to himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees, in other words, he was top of his class. He was the guy that had the extra stars by his name in Pharisee school. And here is Paul, this master of of the law. If you were a Pharisee, then part of your training was that by the time you were 12 years old, you had memorized the entire Hebrew Bible, which is our modern day Old Testament. Memorized it, could literally quote it word for word. And not just quote it, but understand it, articulate the law, go back and forth with your rabbi, with your teacher to argue interpretation of the law. So he was very well schooled and trained by the age of 12 to be able to speak every single word that is in our Old Testament. That's crazy. So this guy was well educated, this guy knew his stuff, but yet in his own self-righteousness... He thought that because he had done so well adhering to the law, that he was doing good for God by persecuting these Christians because the Christians were accused of blasphemy and following a false God and following a false Messiah in Jesus Christ. And so they were trying to kill these guys thinking they were doing a good deed for God. So it, weren't, it wasn't that the, the, these persecutors of the church uh, in the religious sects, that they were just mean people that just wanted to go beat up Christians. And that's really watering down their mission. No, their mission, they felt they were justified in their mission. The, and they thought that they were actually earning brownie points with God by persecuting Christians. This is who Saul was before he came to know Christ. But yet he had all of this religious training, had all of this knowledge, and I can identify with Saul. Not because I killed Christians before I came to Christ, because that wasn't the case. But because I was prideful in my knowledge. I was prideful in the things that I knew. I mean, when I was a kid, I was five years old, and I was preaching to G.I. Joe, telling him he was going to hell if he didn't repent. This is all I've ever wanted to do. This is all I've ever been called to do. This is all that I have ever known that I was going to do. I didn't come from a pastor's home. My parents weren't uh, uh, preachers or or teachers. They were just good church folks. But I knew from a small child that this is what I was supposed to do. I started preaching when I was 15 years old. And I grew up in a type of church that we called ourselves a full gospel church. Now what we mean by the full gospel is we mean we have more revelation than everyone else and that you all that aren't part of the full gospel type teaching, you just don't really have the full revelation. And so we had the full revelation and we thought we were better than everybody else because of what we had up here. We thought we, we would actually say things. Our pastor would actually say things like, you know, that the church down the street, you know, they just have part of Revelation. But here at our church, we have the full Revelation. Ooh. And we walked with this pride and arrogance. Our church was so arrogant. As a matter of fact, we had a 2,500-seat auditorium for our 125 people that came to our church. We did. That church is still standing today, and there's still just a little handful of people that go there. Because I grew up in this mindset. 
that I was smarter, that I was uh, better because of the way I had learned, the way I had been taught, the things I had accomplished. I mean, man, I was preaching at 15, and I've been called to do this my whole life. I mean, when most kids were looking at, you know, becoming uh, architects or going into the army or being a policeman or fireman, I knew I was going to go and be a minister. And that's what I was preparing for and studying for. And I thought that because of that, because of all of my knowledge, I became very prideful in that. Same thing with Paul. Paul became very prideful in those things because, but, but here's the thing about pride. Pride will cause you to miss the true gospel when you're depending on your knowledge. Let me say that again because some of you didn't get it. Pride will cause you to miss the true gospel because you're relying on yourself and you're prideful in your thoughts and in your knowledge and you're depending on yourself instead of depending on Jesus and the finished work of the cross. And so what happened to Saul was he was on his way to Damascus in order to kill more Christians because he heard they were meeting there. And so here's Paul in his righteous indignation, in his self-righteousness, the student of the law saddles up his horse and he heads to Damascus and he has persecuting Christians on the mind. And then all of a sudden God smacks him off of his horse. He hears a voice that says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He said, who are you? He said, I'm Jesus Christ. I'm the one you've actually been persecuting. He came face to face with the one he had been persecuting. And then the Bible says that Saul was blinded. This guy was actually struck blind, and it only mirrored his inward blindness that he had had for years as a proud Pharisee, dependent upon his knowledge in the law, depending upon his knowledge when actually the Bible from, from the front all the way to the back points to Jesus. He missed it, just like the other religious leaders of his day, because they didn't receive Jesus as their Lord until Paul was confronted with it. And when he was confronted with Jesus, he was blinded. And then he said, I'm blind, I can't see. And it was almost like this awakening of, I've been blind. I've been blind to seeing Jesus throughout the scriptures and, and, and these Christians that are preaching and teaching the cross and they're preaching and teaching that he is the Messiah, that he is the fulfillment of the law, that he was the one prophesied about in Genesis chapter 3 when, when, when God said to the woman as they were being kicked out of the Garden of Eden, there's going to come one that's going, to, that's, going, that's going to stomp on the head of the serpent and he's going to bruise his heel but he's going to crush his head. This is him. Oh my gosh, I've been so blind to this. I remember quoting and reading Isaiah, talking about how he would come. That's the Jesus they've been talking about. All of a sudden, all this teaching and training that he had learned, his whole life was starting to make sense to him in a new way. And that experience happened to me as well, because I thought I knew stuff. I thought I understood stuff. But man, when I got confronted and slapped with the gospel and the message of grace, I stopped relying in my own self. I stopped relying on my own works of righteousness when I read in the word that my righteous works, my righteous acts are as filthy rags and don't credit or earn me anything in the eyes of God. Rather, there to be a reflection and a response to my heart being gripped by the gospel and his grace. And when that smacked me in the face, I was like, oh wow, I've been so blind. And the same thing happened with Paul. The same thing has happened in many of you. Where maybe you grew up in church, you grew up thinking, oh, because I've done this religious act or this religious act, or I've done this, or I've been good, I've held my mouth just right, and I walked just right, and I kept my clothes neat and pressed, and everything was just right, and, 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 and I tried to be this perfect person, but no matter how hard you try, you can never earn right standing with God. It's only through Christ and Christ alone. 
It's his sacrifice because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death and you and I earn death through our sin. It's not like somebody sinned worse than someone else. No, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And here's Paul. And he's writing to the church in Rome because it's a strategic place for him to be. He's never been to the church in Rome before. So he's writing them a letter to introduce himself to them, to introduce the gospel to them, and to share with them his heart and his passion for the gospel. He shares with them about righteousness through faith alone. He shares with them about justification in the eyes of God through faith alone. He shares with them about the supremacy and the sovereignty of God. He shares with them his heart for the message and the weight of the gospel. And so he's writing to them to introduce himself to them for the purpose of coming to visit them so he can use that as a base of operations to go and to bring the gospel to Spain because that was his next leg in his journey that he wanted to go and share the gospel and he wanted to connect with that church and network with them and introduce himself. So he's about to come and visit them so he wrote this letter to them to bring the weight of the gospel, to bring a systematic teaching of the gospel which this is the most systematic book in the entire Bible of teaching grace and the gospel. That's what Romans is because he was trying to show with them and share with them the message that he is going to bring and what he's wanting to use there as well to as a springboard to bring to Spain from Rome. So that's what Paul was doing. That's a little bit of who Paul is so we understand all of those things. So let's go to the book of Romans with that understanding and let's read Romans chapter 1 and we'll read verse 1 Romans 1 and verse 1 says Paul a bond servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle separated to the gospel of God which he promised before through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's go back to that first verse there in Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle separated to the gospel of God. He said he was called. He said he was separated. And then in verse 6, he tells the Romans, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. We are called to be bondservants of Jesus Christ. Paul said he was a bondservant, and then later he says, you are called to be a bondservant of Jesus. You're called to literally be a slave of Jesus. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Bondservant, I thought that was like some kind of Edward Jones deal, like where I sit down, you know, and they're my bondservant, and I'm, you know, like buying some bonds and I'm doing a little investing. No, bondservant literally means slave, means you are owned by another. Now, Paul said, I'm owned by Jesus Christ. He's not just someone that came and made me feel warm and fuzzy, and he hugs me and holds me in his lap and cuddles me and makes me feel warm and nice, and 
I love Him and I love to come and be with Him. No, I'm literally owned by Him. Wherever He says to go, I go. Whatever He calls me to be, that's what I am because He owns me. And you see, it's not this thing of I chose Jesus because He's got a great retirement package. It's that, no, He owns me. I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And Paul does this willingly. He submits to the authority of Christ and the ownership of Christ willingly. It's not like a thing that he's going, I'm a bondservant of Jesus. He's like, no, I am willingly subjecting and submitting myself as a bondservant to Jesus Christ because that's what he has called me. You see, Paul understood I was bought with a price. I am no longer my own. It's no longer I that lives, but it's Christ that lives within me. He owns me now. He bought me. He paid for me with His shed blood because the the, the punishment I deserved, He took upon Himself so I didn't have to endure that. And He owns me. And I willingly subject and submit myself to His authority because I understand the weight of my calling. I understand the weight of the gospel. I understand the weight of what He did for me. You see, the problem with humanity is that we're naturally rebellious towards authority. We go, you don't own me. No, nobody owned me. This is America, Jack. You don't own me. Can't nobody own me. I'm going to do what I want, when I want, how I want. I'm not going to submit to anyone. We don't like authority naturally. We come out of the womb rejecting and rebelling authority. Think about your sweet little baby. Oh, sweet little baby. No parent in their right mind set that sweet little baby down and says, let me teach you a few things, okay? When your sister comes by, I want you to smack her real good. I'm going to get on to you now. This is what you do, okay? And I'm going to tell you not to, but do it anyways. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to tell you not to touch the hot stove, but I want you to touch it anyways, okay? I'm training you to do these things. And by the way, lie about that thing that's broken over there in the corner, okay? That's how maybe you can get by with a few things. Why don't you lie? Nobody teaches kids to do that stuff. If you do, you need to be locked up and smacked every day. And I will sign up on the sign-up sheet for the smacking. If you teach your child to do that. Nobody has to teach their children or train their kids to do that. They do it naturally. Why? Because in our sinful fallen nature, we are naturally rebellious towards authority. So when we hear about being bondservants of Jesus Christ, our natural reaction is, Whoa, 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 Jack. I don't think so. I'm not going to be owned by anyone because that rebellious state doesn't want to submit to authority. But Paul says, no, it's not that you just submit to the authority. You're actually called to do that. You're actually called by God to be submitted to Jesus Christ. You see, you're never going to experience the benefit of resting in Christ's finished work on the cross until your pride and your self-dependence is broken. Because when that happens... It reveals your total dependence on Christ. And when total dependence is upon Christ and not on yourself, you willingly submit and you willingly trust. You willingly cling to the cross because you are totally dependent on Him. 
You see, when we do this thing of I'm going to depend on myself and my thoughts and I'm pretty smart and I'll figure this out and then I'm torn between depending on Christ, I'm kind of going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between idol worship and worshiping God, idol worship and worshiping God and I truly haven't gotten to that place where I'm like, okay, no, 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 wait a minute. I need to remind myself of the gospel and the bigness of the gospel because it wrecks my heart. It wrecks my heart, all my selfishness, all of my pride, all of my dependence and reliance on my answers and my ways or the world's answers and the world's ways and it makes me completely reliant on Christ because I've been broken and I go I need you Jesus and sometimes I think that it's harder in my life anyways from my own experience being raised in church oftentimes the pride that can come along with the type of raising that I had and the type of church that I grew up in the type of attitude that developed in my heart sometimes it's harder to realize you need Jesus when you think you've got so many things in your life in order. It's easier sometimes for someone who is down on their luck, who is an alcoholic, who's a drug user, drug abuser, to realize they need Jesus because they get to that point of brokenness a lot quicker. For someone who's walking in spiritual arrogance and spiritual pride, it might have to be a different path for them to realize they actually need Jesus because they get pretty swole up on themselves. That's where I was. I still wrestle with that sometimes where I go, whoa, no, I still need Jesus. You want to know how I know we struggle with that, we wrestle with that? Because we compare ourselves to other people and we say, oh, I I may not be the best Christian, but buddy, I'm better than... And we make ourselves feel better because we compare ourselves to other people. Oh, you people call yourselves Christians? Well, at least I don't do what you do. No, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means all of us are in the same boat apart from Christ. Everybody is in the same boat apart from Christ. It's not the little sinners and the big sinners. It's all of us. Because we have all rebelled against authority. We have all rebelled against God. And we have done it with the breath that He has given us. Thinking of words with the brain that He gave us. And doing evil deeds with the body that He gave us. What an abuse. What a blasphemy of His grace. We have all committed high treason against God. But Him and His grace, while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. His love and His mercy is so big and so huge that it outweighs your sin. It outweighs your deficiency in and of yourself. But until you realize you're deficient in and of yourself, you don't realize you need Jesus. You see, when you think you're sufficient in and of yourself, you trust in yourself. That's where I was. I thought I was sufficient in and of myself. I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing better than some folks. And we play the comparing game, see how we're measuring up in the world especially in our American culture, we always like to measure ourselves against other people. And in our measuring, we become prideful and haughty. And the Bible always says that pride comes before fall. But that brokenness in our heart shows us our need and our dependence for Jesus. And when we realize that, like Paul did, the guy was blind. The guy had nothing, I mean, the the guy had nothing at that point. Everybody abandoned him, left him. He can't go out and kill and persecute Christians anymore. He's been confronted with Jesus and he's going, I have been blinded all of this time. And it broke him. It broke him. And then all of the things that he had heard, that he had learned, began to connect and make sense. And he was willingly a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He was willingly a bondservant. Not something he had felt forced to do, just like worship. 
You know, worship is a natural response of your understanding of the gospel. It's not something you have to force people to do or try to coax people into doing. If you have to try to coax or bait people or gimmick them into worshiping or being a part of church or serving Jesus, then you don't have the gospel. Hello, somebody. Because it's the gospel that shows us our true hope. It's the gospel that makes once what was dead alive. It's the weight of that that confronts us. You see, our lives are for the glory of God. Our lives are to be lived for the glory of God. That means that if He chooses to prosper me according to American standards, then wonderful. It's for His glory. Because I was created for His glory. But if He chooses to have me live in a third world country and live off of bugs, then wonderful. It's for His glory. Hello, somebody. I don't know about that, Pastor. I don't know if I like that or not. Well, talk to Paul, who was chased around and shackled and chained and beaten, and somehow in the midst of his tortured state, being locked up in a jail cell with his buddy, they sang praises to God. How could they do that? Because they weren't serving God based on the conditions. They were serving God because they knew they were called. They understood the weight of their calling. They understood they were bond servants. See, that's why Paul could say with conviction in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He said, I've learned how to be a base. I've learned how to abound. I've learned how to do well, how to do poorly. I've learned how to make it on a full stomach and an empty one. I've learned how to sit at the table of kings, and I've learned how to be shipwrecked and all of it for the glory of God. So it's no longer I that lives, but it's Christ who lives within me, and I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength because it's Him that has called me to be a bond servant. So what does it mean to be called? We look at calling sometimes as being an invitation. Like, oh, you know, you get a little thing in the mail. Hi, this is from God, and I was just wondering, you want to be a part of this church thing? Uh, I want to invite you and come. You know, if you choose to accept, it's going to be really great. Or maybe, I don't know. Maybe, why don't you just try it out and see? And we go, hmm, this is a nice little invitation. I might choose to accept that. You see, that's not how the call of God is. It's much weightier than an invitation. A call of God is much weightier than any invitation you can have. The Greek word there that Paul used when he said he's called is the Greek word kalien. And the weight of that word is the same weight of the Hebrew word kara that is given in Genesis chapter 1 and 5. What does Genesis 1 and 5 say? I'm glad you asked. I'll read it. This is the same weight of the word that Paul used when he said, I'm called. Genesis 1 and 5 says, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Wow. It wasn't like an invitation. It was, your light, I call you day. Your dark, I call you night. Your Paul, I call you apostle. That's the weight of the calling. Of God. That's the weight of the call. And then he says in verse 6 to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, you are called to be saints. He said, You are called of Jesus Christ. He says, You are called. The, even, even the word church has that exact same root word, that kalian, as the, as, as the word church. The Greek word for church is ekklesia, which means called out ones means we are called, folks. 
This is not something to be looked at as a commodity. This is something that carries a lot of weight with it, a lot of importance. I think that in our culture, we're so accustomed to everything being customized to us that the moment we see something we don't like or something that we don't enjoy, we get so consumer-minded that we forget we're called. The weight of the call is, what did God say? Did He call you? Did He draw you? He said, I'm Paul and I'm called. I am called to be a bondservant. I'm called to be an apostle. He said, and by the way, you guys, you're called as well to Jesus Christ. You're called to be that bondservant. You see, that's a lot weightier and deeper and stronger than an invitation. We have been called out by God as His church. We have been called out by God to be bondservants of Jesus Christ. And Paul's using the strongest language possible here to convey this message because he wants people to understand the weight of following Jesus. My fear is that in the American church is that we lose the weight of the gospel because we treat Christianity and church like it's a commodity rather than something we've been called to. We treat it like it's something we pick off of a shelf and we just consume. We treat it like a restaurant that we go to. It's just somewhere we go and we don't carry the weight of the calling of being a part of something bigger than ourselves. And here Paul is saying, no, 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 that's not what I'm communicating. Because you see, Paul didn't have to explain all this to the Romans. Because this is written in English that I'm conveying to you. And in English, we have some funny ways of using our words where sometimes we can say things, but yet they have different interpretations or different meanings in English. Just like if I went on a sailboat to sail, to go to a sail to hopefully buy something on sale. What did you just say? I just used a lot of English words that sounded the same but meant something different. Just like when we say called, we could think a lot of different things on called. We could have a lot of different interpretations or a lot of different ways to use the word called. But when Paul wrote that, there was no reading between the lines of what called meant because he didn't write a word that was up for debate. He used that word that meant the same weight of God saying, light your day. And they understood that when they read that. They're like, whoa, this Paul guy, he's serious. He said he's called to be a bondservant. He said he's called to be an apostle. He said God has called him and separated him. And then later on he tells us, just a, just a few sentences later in this letter that he's written to us, that we are also called of Jesus Christ. Whoa. They understood the weight of that the moment that they read it. But here in our culture, sometimes we become so oversaturated with things that look and sound Christian, and those things completely redirect our focus off of Jesus and onto ourselves. You want to know how I know that? Because sometimes we search more diligently in Christian circles today for life enhancement than we do Jesus. We look more for how we can go, okay, high five, thanks Jesus for dying on the cross, I still need you, yeah, pastor says that, I know that, but what else you got? And he's going, no, I I am it, buddy. The fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelled in Jesus Christ. He was lacking nothing. And so that means when I put my faith and trust in the finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ, that through Jesus I am lacking nothing. That means that I could be completely satisfied with Jesus. Completely satisfied in Him. Not because of what He does for me, but what He did for me on the cross. And when that reality grips me, I go, whoa, I'm a bondservant. 
I get it. I'm called. I feel the weight of that. I understand the weight of that. And it's much more than just an invite to be a part of something. It's a calling. That's weighty, folks. That is different than me just presenting something that sounds nice and I want to sweeten it up and try to sweeten the deal. No, no, no. You realize you need Jesus when you're like, wow, I am completely broken, helpless, and, 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 and I need you, Jesus. And I cling to the cross. Now, look at how many times Paul used that word called in just these first seven verses. The first verse, he said, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 7, he says, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Now, if you have a New King James Version like I'm reading or a King James Bible, you'll see there that it says called to be saints. And if you see that to be, you see that it's italicized. Does anybody see that in their Bible, that that to be is italicized? The reason that it's italicized is because when that was translated, anything in your Bible that has italics in it means that those words were added in addition to the original meaning. And the reason the translator added those and they italicized those is because they wanted you to understand, listen, this wasn't a part of the original text, the original script, but we added this to help it make sense to you so you would understand it. Because not everything, if you've ever studied a foreign language, it's not just one word translate to another word and you just need to learn the different words for your word. There are whole ideas that can be communicated with just one word that may take us a whole sentence. Have you ever heard someone in another language speak and it takes them a long time to say something and then on the subtitles on your screen that maybe you're watching a movie, it says something real short and you're like, wow, that took a really long time to say. That's because those words combined make that same idea. It doesn't mean that it's just a word for word trade out. And so as you're looking at a Greek translation or a Hebrew translation, which is one of the most difficult languages to translate, oftentimes in Scripture they would add these things to help translate into English. Now the King James Bible was translated in 1611. King James wanted a universal uh, Bible that was actually administered by the government of England. So this was the government Bible, all right? And that's what the King James Bible was intended to be. And so he had a group of people come together and translate this into the King's English and you need to understand, 1611, England, very heavy Catholic influence, very heavy Catholic influence in that time. So you can see why the italics were added in verse 7, because it says that we are called to be saints. In other words, like to be is a destination, like somewhere that you're going, and hopefully you end up like there's some type of significance in someone being a saint. Well, first of all, becoming a saint, if you will, as a journey or as a reward, there is no such journey, no such reward, no such thing as sainthood mentioned in all of Scripture. That is something that was fabricated by man and it has turned into idolatrous worship because people will pray to individual saints to get individual things they think they need. I need to pray to this saint for this, this saint for that, this saint for that. That is not scriptural. It is not in the Bible. So if you grew up believing that, that may be hard for you to understand and hear, but there is no biblical foundation for that type of teaching or those type of prayers for individual saints to bless you. Or if you pay money to light a candle at a shrine of an individual saint, that that saint will bless you. There is no biblical foundation for that. That is idolatrous worship. So when we look here, we see the Catholic influence of the King James Bible that says you are called to be saints. If we remove those words to be, what does it say? Paul's saying, you're called saints. What does that mean? That means, he said, church in Rome, you're called saints. You are called 
You are called. Remember the weight of the word called. And then saints. Well, what does the word saints mean? Well, it doesn't mean a football team. (laughs) What it means, what the word saints means is a holy, separate people that have been separated unto God. That's what a saint means. That's literally the translation of a saint. It doesn't mean someone who tried really hard to do a lot of really nice things and became Mother Teresa II, and then now they're a saint. That's not what that means. The word saint simply means holy, separate people. What are you separate to? You're separate completely unto God. In other words, He owns you, you're His, you're separated for His glory, for His purpose. So when we see here, Paul says, listen, to all you who are in Rome, beloved of God, you're called saints. Not a journey, not a destination where you're going to end up maybe one day being a saint. No, he said, you are called to be a holy, separate people unto God for himself, for his glory, for his pleasure. In other words, you're a bond servant too. That's what he was saying. He's saying, this isn't just me, like I have some special commission to be a bond servant, and you're not going to be a bond servant. No, you're a holy, separate people too, to all of you who are in Rome. He said, you're all called of Jesus Christ. He has called you this. And God has called us to be separate to Himself because we were created for worship. And if we were created for worship, then God has called us to be separate from worshiping anything other than Him. So He's called us to be separate from worshiping idols. He's called us to be separate from worshiping false gods or false idols because false gods beg for us to worship them by presenting themselves as an answer or as a solution for the void that's in our lives. A lot of us, we have this feeling of this void and a false god or a false idol will come and present itself to you as the answer. And if you bow down and worship the god, you will find yourself that it really is a lie. That it doesn't really bring about the things that it promises it will bring about. We look at people on television. We look at good marketing campaigns that make us go, oh wow, those people look happy. Those people look like they're having a good time. I need to consume their product. I need to have what that person has on television because, man, they look like they've got it all together. I need to be more like this person or that person. And so we chase after those false gods in order to worship them, to give them our heart, to give them our time, to give them our talent, to give them our treasure in order to worship them because we want what they promise to give us, but they always leave us short. The God of alcohol, the God of pornography, the God of lust, the God of money, the God of possessions, the God of notoriety, the God of food, the God of image, the God of drugs, the God of painkillers or anything else that will present itself as an answer in order to get you to worship them only to leave you temporarily satisfied, only to leave you feeling empty once again, guilty, ashamed, addicted. And when you get down, when you get depressed, when you're feeling empty from your false God worship, what does the false God do? It comes right next to you and goes, you know what you really need? You really need another drink. You know what you really need? You deserve to look at that pornography. You know what you need? You really need to go out and spend some more money because you deserve it. This is how idol worship goes. Idol worship goes like this. You, you feel bad and, and, and you look at people who have things you don't have and you go, I wish I had what they had. And then, you know, I could apply for that low interest credit card. I mean, it's 12 months, no interest, you know, same as cash. You know, I could pay that off, and then you go charge it up to the max, and then when the bill comes, you can't pay it, and you don't pay it, or you're late, and then all of a sudden, those bills begin to pile up. You've got the stuff that it gave you, and it made you happy when you got it. You're going to look at my stuff, and now you feel empty again, and now here comes the bills, and here comes the red ink bills. All of a sudden, they, sh- they swap ink on you, and they start using different colored ink in the letters that they send you. Then you start getting those phone calls, and then maybe someone knocking at the door. You may have to go to court, or you may lose some things over. You may get your wages garnished, whatever the 
case may be. And you go, oh man, all of this because of idol worship. And you feel bad, you feel stressed out, you feel depressed because of the lie that the idol told you. And then you know what the idol comes to you and says when you feel depressed, weak, ashamed, and guilty, and overwhelmed? You know, you're really stressed out right now. What you need is to go buy you and your family a real nice steak dinner. You deserve it. Instead of being a good steward of your finances, instead of taking responsibility for the consequences of what you've done, you go... I do deserve it. You're right, idol. And you go right back to worshiping the idol again. That's how idols lie. That's how we become addicted. That's how we get in vicious cycles that need to be broken because our worship is on things that are promising satisfaction and never deliver. But you have been called as a bondservant of Christ. To worship Him and Him alone because you are a holy, separate people unto God. And when you realize the gospel and the weight of the gospel, it causes you to worship Him naturally. Not a forced worship, but a natural worship. Because you recognize how big He is and how great He is and how He in Himself satisfies. The thing that separates us from our recognition and submission to the authority of Jesus Christ is when we have been confronted with our sinfulness. When we realize we're desperate for God. When we realize we're desperate for the saving power of the gospel. We are bondservants called to the glory of God by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen, somebody? You see, the, the, the more my understanding of the gospel becomes alive in me, the greater the redirection in my worship. The more that message becomes alive in me, the greater the redirection of my worship. And in other words, my worship changes direction from worshiping a false idol that lies and it redirects to be, to be worshiping the one who gives life, the one who is life. Check this out in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 and verse 5 says this, for those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject, uh, it, it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. In other words, it can't submit. It's not going to submit to authority. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. He said, listen, you're dead to this way of thinking. You're dead to this sin, if indeed His Spirit lives on the inside of you. But we can oftentimes forget these things. That's why I say things like, you never stop needing Jesus, or we need to remind ourselves of the gospel every day because we can forget it. Because how quickly can we revert back to our old way of thinking? How quickly can we revert back to our old way of doing things? Because we begin to get self-reliant again. We begin to get prideful again. Satan tries to come in and trip us up or snare us with those things in order to get us to get back involved with idol worship again. 
And he says, listen, no, 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 no. You see, that mind is at enmity with God. He said, you can't live in that flesh. This, you, you, you've now been called to live by the Spirit. The Spirit who doesn't bring condemnation, who doesn't bring death, but brings life. And who brings freedom. Who brings victory over the power of sin and death. You see, so that should direct our hearts to worship Him. That's what the understanding of the gospel does. When that becomes alive in me, the greater the redirection of my worship. The greater the redirection of my worship goes to God and not false idols, the more satisfied in Him I become. The more my understanding of my call to be a bondservant, the more I understand I'm called to be separate and holy to God alone. The more I understand the perfection of the cross, the more I understand my need for Jesus, the more I recognize my complete dependence on the finished work of Jesus, the bigger His grace becomes to me, the more I grow in satisfaction with Him and Him alone. Because my worship will cause me to be satisfied. But it's got to be redirected. It's got to be redirected from worshiping idols to worshiping Him. Because it's the gospel that does that. It's the gospel that grips my heart, that makes me go, whoa, 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 whoa. You're right. I need you, Jesus. I need you and you alone. Romans 1 and 7, Paul said this, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, grace and peace to you. Oftentimes... We want to hear the peace part first because we want God to give us peace. We want God to give us joy. We want God to give us things that we don't have in our lives because our worship is misdirected. But what Paul understood was that grace comes first and peace flows as a byproduct of it. You see, when I understand grace, when I understand the gospel, when I understand His goodness, whoa, Then I understand where Jesus said, come follow me, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Find your rest in the finished work of the cross. All of a sudden I go, man, you mean all of that effort to try to earn his forgiveness or try to offset the scales of justice that are weighed against me because of my sin, all of that was in vain? Absolutely. Because it's the finished work of Christ. It's not what I've done, but it's what He did. It's no longer I that lives, but it's Christ who lives within me. And I go, wow, I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And I can rest in the peace of God that passes my understanding, that guards my heart and that guards my mind in Christ Jesus floods over my body. Peace like a river flows because I realize that it is the finished work of Jesus Christ that has set me free from sin and death. And that causes my heart to worship. That causes the position of my heart to be submitted and say, I'm your bondservant. I'm called by you. I am called of God to be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I am called to the church. I am called to be a part of His body. I am called to be a son or a daughter of God. And then I understand that this wasn't something I did, and I rest in that. I rest in the fact that it's a gift, and I rest in the fact that I go, wow, I have been adopted by God. 
we've received no longer a spirit of bondage, but a spirit of adoption in which we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, God, you're my Father. You have adopted me. You've chosen me while I was still yet a sinner. Christ died in my place. The weight of that should wreck the pride in our hearts that would keep us worshiping false idols. The sheer awe of that should wreck our hearts in a way that any self-dependence would be viewed as blasphemous in our eyes. Where we go, I, I'm sorry God, I've been blaspheming your name by putting dependence in my name and in my works and in myself. I need you. When I realize that, it grips me in a way that directs my worship and peace flows over me. So stop seeking the byproduct and start seeking the source. I'll say that again. I want you to write it down. Stop seeking the byproduct and start seeking the source. It's not you-ianity. It's not me-ianity. It's Christianity. Amen? When I grow as a disciple in the saving grace of Jesus, and that becomes more and more apparent and real to me, peace flows like a river. I can rest in the finished work of Christ, and I go, wow, I know that life may be really difficult right now, but I am called. This is so much bigger than me. God, help my life to glorify you. Help me through this difficult time by realizing you're everything I need. If the whole world turned against me and I still had Jesus, I still have enough. If everyone hates me, if everyone wants to tarnish my name and I still have Jesus, I still have everything I need. And we say that, and it sounds nice, and it sounds Christian-y. But is it real to you? Because if the weight of that is real to you, then you'll go, if God is for me, who can be against me? What's the worst thing man can do unto me? Kill my body? He can't kill my soul. I'm not going to fear him. Instead, I'm going to be in reverence and awe and holy fear of the one who can take both body and soul and condemn it to hell. And instead, I'm going to say, you know what? I'm going to walk in fear of submission and awe of you, God. Because you love the world so much that you sent your only son. And I believe. Think about this. Even the measure of faith that you and I have been given to believe in Jesus Christ was a gift of God. That's grace. It's the grace of God that he would give sinners the ability to even believe in Jesus. Think about how much of a gift of grace that is. He didn't have to do that. He chose to do that. He chose to give each one of us the measure of faith that we could believe in his son and we could receive his atoning work because God wasn't willing that any should perish. So each one of us have been given the gift of grace. Some of us use that gift of faith and we believe in Jesus. Others of us, we put our faith in our idols. We put our faith in ourselves. We put our faith in the world or the government. We put our faith in our job. We put our faith in what we look at for our source of hope or source of joy or satisfaction. But even that faith is grace in operation in your life. You see, grace is something that you can't earn, something you didn't deserve. But yet it's a gift, a free gift that God gave to every one of you. He gave it to me while I was still prideful and trusting in myself. 
I had that gift of grace that God says, yeah, I'm going to smack you across the head one day. I'm going to knock you off your horse and you're going to realize you've been blind all these years and it's going to wreck you. But what it's going to do is it's going to make you cling to the cross of Christ. Thank God for His mercy. Thank God for His goodness. Thank God for His Holy Spirit that leads us and guides us into all truth. It's His Holy Spirit that draws us. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It's the free gift of God that you didn't deserve, that I didn't deserve. But He still gives it. You see, we're not justified by ourselves. We're justified by faith in the finished work of Christ. Not by works, not by communion, not by baptism, not by catechism, not by any other ism. We're justified by the finished work of Christ. You are called. We are called as a church. We are called as this local body, this church family. You are called. This isn't a commodity deal where we're consumer-minded shopping things to see what I like, what I don't like. Are you called? Paul said, I am called. God said, you, you're going to be the pastor of Word of Grace. I have called you to be so. That's a lot different than me going, hmm, weather, I don't know. Cheese, yeah, I could give it or take, you know, leave it, or give it, take it or leave it, I don't know. No, it's called. You understand? It's not, hmm, all the conditions are perfect. I think I'll choose that job. No, it's I chose you. That's a lot weightier than me thinking that I had something to do with it other than just submit. I had to go, okay, God, this is your call, not my will, but your will. That's why someone can be totally satisfied serving God when the conditions may not meet exactly what they would like. That's how you can find peace in a situation that the conditions may not be what you like. They may not be catered to you individually. You can still go, I'm called. I'm called. And that transcends the circumstances. That's why someone can say, you know what? I'm going to be a missionary to Africa. Why it's always Africa? I don't know. But it is. Because a lot of us, we all say, God, I'll go anywhere you want me to go. Send me, Lord. Here I am. Send me. Just not to Africa. I'll go anywhere. It's not Africa. And then God says, you're going to Africa. (laughs) Well, okay, God, I'll go to Africa as long as I have a really nice hut. I have some good servants and I eat, you know, prime rib every night. No, actually, you're going to be homeless and chased by lions and live off bugs. (laughs) We would go, wait a minute, God. That doesn't sound very appealing to me, but God says, but I've called you to it. God doesn't call people to things like that, does he not? What about John the Baptist who lived in the wilderness and ate locusts and wild honey and people thought he was nuts? And he was going to be beheaded and Jesus said, hey, you're going to die, by the way. Okay, I'll still do it. What about the prophet Isaiah whom... God was saying, where's there a man that I can send? He says, here, my Lord, send me. And then you read the very next few verses, and he says, by the way, you're going to preach for the rest of your life, and they're never going to listen to you. And people are going to hate you and want you dead and run you out of town. Still up for it? It's not a conditional calling. 
It's something God said. And I go, okay, God, I'm not going to run from this. I'm going to submit to this because this is who you've called me to be. And I know that outside of my calling that I'll never be satisfied. You are called to Jesus. You are called to Christ. Outside of him, you will never be satisfied. You can search for peace. You can search for meaning, satisfaction in life, and you will never find it because you're searching for something that can only be found in submitting to the call of Jesus Christ. So I ask you, are you called? Are you called? It's the love of God that grips our hearts and calls us and separates us to God. Have you responded to the gospel? Have you responded to that call? Maybe you're being called right now. Maybe the Holy Spirit is gripping your heart right now and saying, respond to me. Respond to my call. I'm gripping your heart and I'm saying, hey, you need to stop depending on yourself and stop your idol worship and you need to start clinging to the cross. We made it through verse 7. I didn't think we would get that far, maybe. We made it, but there's so much weight in just that small amount of text, and we're going to keep going through this book, and I don't know, we might make it seven more scriptures next week, Lord willing, I don't know, but we're going to follow his leading and his spirit, and as we grow together as a church family in this understanding, as we grow in these things, don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. In other words, respond when you hear it. So if you have been convicted, if you have been confronted this morning, respond. We're going to receive communion. I want our servers to go ahead and get ready. And when you get all the the servers assembled, go ahead and serve the people. And as you're holding your communion this morning, as you're holding those things, I want you to, in all seriousness and in a very weighty manner, consider the message today. I want you to consider the confrontation that the Holy Spirit has confronted you with. I want you to consider the weight of that. And I want you to respond to it. How should I respond to it? Whatever God is telling you to do. That's how you need to respond to it. As you get your communion and as you open it up, I want you to just hold it and and I want you to think about those things. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit wogcc.com.